Chapter Seventeen, Part Two, of the Montessori Method. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Stearns. The Montessori Method, by Maria Montessori, translated by Anne E. George. Chapter Seventeen, Part Two. Description of the method and didactic material used. I believe, however, that there exists between the two extremes a happy medium which is the true and practical way. We should lead the child more gradually to the conquest of written language, yet we should still have it come as a spontaneous fact, and his work should from the first be almost perfect. Experience has shown us how to control this phenomenon and how to lead the child more calmly to this new power. The fact that the children see their companions writing leads them, through imitation, to write as soon as they can. In this way, when the child writes, he does not have the entire alphabet at his disposal, and the number of words which he can write is limited. He is not even capable of making all of the words possible through a combination of the letters which he does know. He still has the great joy of the first written word, but this is no longer the source of an overwhelming surprise, since he sees just such wonderful things happening each day, and knows that sooner or later the same gift will come to all. This tends to create a calm and ordered environment, still full of beautiful and wonderful surprises. Making a visit to the children's house, even during the opening weeks, one makes fresh discoveries. Here, for instance, are two little children who, though they fairly radiate pride and joy, are writing tranquilly. Yet these children, until yesterday, had never thought of writing. The directress tells me that one of them began to write yesterday morning at eleven o'clock, the other at three in the afternoon. We have come to accept the phenomenon with calmness and tacitly recognize it as a natural form of the child's development. The wisdom of the teacher shall decide when it is necessary to encourage a child to write. This can only be when he is already perfect in the three periods of the preparatory exercise, and yet does not write of his own accord. There is danger that, in retarding the act of writing, the child may plunge finally into a tumultuous effort, due to the fact that he knows the entire alphabet and has no natural check. The signs by which the teacher may almost precisely diagnose the child's maturity in this respect are the regularity of the parallel lines which fill in the geometric figures, the recognition with closed eyes of the sandpaper letters, the scrutiny and readiness shown in the composition of words. Before intervening by means of a direct invitation to write, it is best to wait at least a week in the hope that the child may write spontaneously. When he has begun to write spontaneously, the teacher may intervene to guide the process of the writing. The first help which she may give is that of ruling the blackboard, so that the child may be led to maintain regularity and proper dimensions in his writing. The second is that of inducing the child, whose writing is not firm, to repeat the tracing of the sandpaper letters. She should do this instead of directly correcting his actual writing for the child does not perfect himself by repeating the act of writing, 
but by repeating the acts preparatory to writing. I remember a little beginner who, wishing to make his blackboard writing perfect, brought all of the sandpaper letters with him, and before writing touched two or three times all of the letters needed in the words he wished to write. If a letter did not seem to him to be perfect, he erased it and retouched the letter upon the card before rewriting. Our children, even after they have been writing for a year, continue to repeat the three preparatory exercises. They thus learn both to write and to perfect their writing without really going through the actual act. With our children, actual writing is a test. It springs from an inner impulse, and from the pleasure of explaining a superior activity, it is not an exercise. As the soul of the mystic perfects itself through prayer, even so in our little ones, the highest expression of civilization, written language, is acquired and improved through exercises which are akin to, but which are not, writing. There is educational value in this idea of preparing oneself before trying, and of perfecting oneself before going on. To go forward correcting his own mistakes, boldly attempting things which he does imperfectly, and of which he is as yet unworthy, dulls the sensitiveness of the child's spirit toward his own errors. My method of writing contains an educative concept, teaching the child that prudence which makes him avoid errors, that dignity which makes him look ahead, and which guides him to perfection, and that humility which unites him closely to those sources of good through which alone he can make a spiritual conquest, putting far from him the illusion that the immediate success is ample justification for continuing in the way he has chosen. The fact that all the children, those who are just beginning the three exercises, and those who have been writing for months, daily repeat the same exercise, unites them and makes it easy for them to meet upon an apparently equal plane. Here there are no distinctions of beginners and experts. All of the children fill in the figures with colored pencils, touch the sandpaper letters, and compose words with the movable alphabets. The little ones beside the big ones who help them. He who prepares himself and he who perfects himself both follow the same path. It is the same way in life, for, deeper than any social distinction, there lies an equality, a common meeting point, where all men are brothers, or, as in the spiritual life, aspirants and saints again and again pass through the same experiences. Writing is very quickly learned, because we begin to teach it only to those children who show a desire for it by a spontaneous attention to the lesson given by the directress to other children, or by watching the exercises in which the others are occupied. Some individuals learn without ever having received any lessons, solely through listening to the lessons given to others. In general, all children of four are intensely interested in writing, and some of our children have begun to write at the age of three and a half. We find that children particularly enthusiastic about tracing the sandpaper letters. During the first period of my experiments, when the children were shown the alphabet for the first time, I one day asked Signor Bettini to bring out to the terrace where the children were at play all of the various letters which she herself had made. As soon as the children saw them, they gathered about us, their fingers outstretched in their eagerness to touch the letters. Those who secured cards were unable to touch them properly because of the other children 
who crowded about trying to reach the cards in our laps. I remember with what an impulsive movement the possessors of the cards held them on high like banners, and began to march, followed by all the other children, who clapped their hands and cried out joyously. The procession passed before us, and all, big and little, laughed merrily, while the mothers, attracted by the noise, leaned from the windows to watch the sight. The average time that elapses between the first trial of the preparatory exercises and the first written word is, for children of four years, from a month to a month and a half. With children of five years, the period is much shorter, being about a month. But one of our pupils learned to use in writing all the letters of the alphabet in twenty days. Children of four years, after they have been in school for two months and a half, can write any word from dictation, and can pass in writing with ink in a notebook. Our little ones are generally experts after three months' time, and those who have written for six months may be compared to the children in the third elementary. Indeed, writing is one of the easiest and most delightful of all the conquests made by the child. If adults learned as easily as children under six years of age, it would be an easy matter to do away with illiteracy. We would probably find two grave hindrances to the attainment of such a brilliant success. The torpor of the muscular sense, and those permanent defects of spoken language, which would be sure to translate themselves into the written language. I have not made experiments along this line, but I believe that one school year would be sufficient to lead an illiterate person not only to write, but to express his thoughts in written language. So much for the time necessary for learning. As to the execution, our children write well from the moment in which they begin. The form of the letters, beautifully rounded and flowing, is surprising in its similarity to the form of the sandpaper models. The beauty of our writing is rarely equaled by any scholars in the elementary schools who have not had special exercises in penmanship. I have made a close study of penmanship, and I know how difficult it would be to teach pupils of twelve or thirteen years to write an entire word without lifting the pen, except for the few letters which require this. The up-and-down strokes with which they have filled their copy-book make flowing writing almost impossible to them. Our little pupils, on the other hand, spontaneously and with a marvellous security, write entire words without lifting the pen, maintaining perfectly the slant of the letters and making the distance between each letter equal. This has caused more than one visitor to exclaim, If I had not seen it, I should never have believed it. Indeed, penmanship is a superior form of teaching, and is necessary to correct defects already acquired and fixed. It is a long work, for the child, seeing the model, must follow the movements necessary to reproduce it. While there is no direct correspondence between the visual sensation and the movements with which he must make. Too often penmanship is taught at an age when all the defects have become established, and when the physiological period in which the muscular memory is ready has been passed. We directly prepare the child, not only for writing, but also for penmanship, paying great attention to the beauty of form, having the chosen touch the letters in script, and to the flowing quality of the letters. The exercises in filling in prepare for this. Reading Didactic Material The didactic material for the lessons in reading consists in slips of paper or cards upon which are written in clear, large script, 
words, and phrases. In addition to these cards, we have a great variety of toys. Experience has taught me to distinguish clearly between writing and reading, and has shown me that the two acts are not absolutely contemporaneous. Contrary to the usually accepted idea, writing precedes reading. I do not consider as reading the test which the child makes when he verifies the word that he has written. He is translating signs into sounds, as he first translated sounds into signs. In this verification, he already knows the word, and has repeated it to himself while writing it. What I understand by reading is the interpretation of an idea from the written signs. The child who has not heard the word pronounced, and who recognizes it when he sees it composed upon the table with the cardboard letters, and who can tell what it means, this child reads. The word which he reads has the same relation to written language that the word which he hears bears to articulate language. Both serve to receive the language transmitted to us by others. So, until the child reads a transmission of ideas from the written word, he does not read. We may say, if we like, that writing, as described, is a fact in which the psychomotor mechanism prevails, while in reading there enters a work which is purely intellectual, but it is evident how our method for writing prepares for reading, making the difficulties almost imperceptible. Indeed, writing prepares the child to interpret, mechanically, the union of the letter sounds of which the written word is composed. When a child in our school knows how to write, he knows how to read the sounds of which the word is composed. It should be noticed, however, that when the child composes the words with a movable alphabet, or when he writes, he has time to think about the signs which he must select to form the word. The writing of a word requires a great deal more time than that necessary for reading the same word. The child who knows how to write, when placed before a word which he must interpret by reading, is silent for a long time, and generally reads the component sounds with the same slowness with which he would have written them. But the sense of the word becomes evident only when it is pronounced clearly and with a phonetic accent. Now, in order to place the phonetic accent, the child must recognize the word. That is, he must recognize the idea which the word represents. The intervention of a superior work of the intellect is necessary if he is to read. Because of all this, I proceed in the following way with the exercises in reading, and as will be evident, I do away entirely with the old-time primer. I prepare a number of little cards made from ordinary writing paper. On each of these I write in large clear script some well-known word, one which has already been pronounced many times by the children, and which represents an object actually present or well known to them. If the word refers to an object which is before them, I place this object under the eyes of the child, in order to facilitate his interpretation of the word. I will say, in this connection, the objects used in these writing games are for the most part toys, of which we have a great many in the children's houses. Among these toys are the furnishings of a doll's house, balls, dolls, flocks of sheep or various animals, tin soldiers, railways, and an infinite variety of simple figures. If writing serves to correct, or better, to direct and perfect the mechanism of the articulate language of the child, 
Reading serves to help the development of ideas, and relates them to the development of the language. Indeed, writing aids the physiological language, and reading aids the social language. We begin, then, as I have indicated, with the nomenclature that is, with the reading of names of objects, which are well known or present. There is no question of beginning with words that are easy or difficult, for the child already knows how to read any word, that is, he knows how to read the sounds which compose it. I allow the little one to translate the written word slowly into sounds, and if the interpretation is exact, I limit myself to saying faster. The child reads more quickly the second time, but still often without understanding. I then repeat faster, faster. He reads faster each time, repeating the same accumulation of sounds, and finally the word bursts upon his consciousness. Then he looks upon it as if he recognized a friend, and assumes the air of satisfaction which so often radiates our little ones. This completes the exercise for reading. It is a lesson which goes very rapidly, since it is only presented to a child who is already prepared through writing. Truly, we have buried the tedious and stupid ABC primer side by side with the useless copy-books. When the child has read the word, he places the explanatory card under the object whose name it bears, and the exercise is finished. One of the most interesting discoveries was made in the effort to devise a game through which the children might, without effort, learn to read words. We spread out upon one of the large tables a great variety of toys. Each one of them had a corresponding card upon which the name of the toy was written. We folded these little cards and mixed them up in a basket, and the children who knew how to read were allowed to take turns in drawing these cards for the basket. Each child had to carry his card back to his desk, unfold it quietly, and read it mentally, not showing it to those about him. He then had to fold it up again, so that the secret which it contained should remain unknown. Taking the folded card in his hand, he went to the table. He had then to pronounce clearly the name of a toy and present the card to the directress, in order that she might verify the word he had spoken. The little card thus became current coin, with which he might acquire the toy he had named. For, if he pronounced the word clearly, and indicated the correct object, the directress allowed him to take the toy, and to play with it as long as he wished. When each child had had a turn, the directress called the first child, and let him draw a card from another basket. This card he read as soon as he had drawn it. It contained the name of one of his companions, who did not yet know how to read, and for that reason could not have a toy. The child who had read the name then offered to his little friend the toy with which he had been playing. We taught the children to present these toys in a gracious and polite way, accompanying the act with a bow. In this way we did away with every idea of class distinction and inspired the sentiment of kindness toward those who did not possess the same blessings as ourselves. This reading game proceeded in a marvelous way. The contentment of these poor children in possessing even for a little while such beautiful toys can be easily imagined. But what was my amazement when the children, having learned to understand the written cards, refused to take the toys? They explained that they did not wish to waste time in playing, and, with a species of insatiable desire, preferred to draw out and read the cards one after another. I watched them, seeking to understand the secret of these souls of whose greatness I had been so ignorant. As I stood in meditation among the eager children, the discovery that it was knowledge they loved, and not the silly game, filled me with wonder, and made me think of the greatness of the human soul. 
We therefore put away the toys, and set about making hundreds of written slips, containing names of children, cities, and objects, and also of colors and qualities known through the sense exercises. We placed these slips in open boxes, which we left where the children could make free use of them. I expected that childish inconsistency would at least show itself in a tendency to pass from one box to another, but no, each child finished emptying the box under his hand before passing to another, being very insatiable in the desire to read. Coming into the school one day, I found that the directress had allowed the children to take the tables and chairs out upon the terrace, and was having school in the open air. A number of little ones were playing in the sun, while others were seated in a circle about the tables containing the sandpaper letters and the movable alphabet. A little apart sat the directress, holding upon her lap a long narrow box full of written slips, and all along the edge of her box were little hands, fishing for the beloved cards. "'You may not believe me,' said the directress, "'but it is more than an hour since we began this, and they are not satisfied yet. We tried the experiment of bringing balls and dolls to the children.' but without result such futilities had no power beside the joys of knowledge seeing these surprising results i had already thought of testing the children with print and had suggested that the directress print the word under the written word upon a number of slips but the children forestalled us there was in the hall a calendar upon which many of the words were printed in clear type while others were done in gothic characters in their mania for reading the children began to look at this calendar, and, to my inexpressible amazement, read not only the print, but the Gothic script. There, therefore, remained nothing but the presentation of a book, and I did not feel that any of those available were suited to our method. The mothers soon had proofs of the progress of their children. Finding in the pockets of some of them little slips of paper upon which were written rough notes of marketing done, bread, salt, etc., our children were making lists of the marketing they did for their mothers. Other mothers told us that their children no longer ran through the streets, but stopped to read the signs over the shops. A four-year-old boy, educated in a private house by the same method, surprised us in the following way. The child's father was a deputy, and received many letters. He knew that his son had for two months been taught by means of exercises apt to facilitate the learning of reading and writing but he had paid slight attention to it, and, indeed, put little faith in the method. One day, as he sat reading, with a boy playing near, a servant entered, and placed upon the table a large number of letters that had just arrived. The little boy turned his attention to these, and holding up each letter, read aloud the address. To his father this seemed a veritable miracle. As to the average time required for learning to read and write, Experience would seem to show that, starting from the moment in which the child writes, the passage from such an inferior stage of the graphic language to the superior stage of reading averages a fortnight. Security in reading is, however, arrived at much more slowly than perfection in writing. In the greater majority of cases, the child who writes beautifully still reads rather poorly. Not all children of the same age are at the same point in this matter of reading and writing. We not only do not force a child, but we do not even invite him, or in any way attempt to coax him, to do that which he does not wish to do. So it sometimes happens that certain children, not having spontaneously presented themselves for these lessons, are left in peace, and do not know how to read or write. 
If the old-time method, which tyrannized over the will of the child and destroyed his spontaneity, does not believe in making a knowledge of written language obligatory before the age of six, much less do we. I am not ready to decide, without a wider experience, whether the period when the spoken language is fully developed is, in every case, the proper time for beginning to develop the written language. In any case, almost all of the normal children treated with our method began to write at four years, and at five know how to read and write, at least as well as children who have finished the first elementary. They could enter the second elementary a year in advance of the time when they are admitted to first. Games for the reading of phrases. As soon as my friends saw that the children could read print, they made me gifts of beautifully illustrated books. Looking through these books of simple fairy lore, I felt sure that the children would not be able to understand them. The teachers, feeling entirely satisfied as to the ability of their pupils, tried to show me I was wrong. Having different children read to me, and saying that they read much more perfectly than the children who had finished the second elementary. I did not, however, allow myself to be deceived, and made two trials. I first had the teacher tell one of the stories to the children while I observed to what extent they were spontaneously interested in it. The attention of the children wandered after a few words. I had forbidden the teacher to recall to order those who did not listen, and thus, little by little, a hum arose in the schoolroom, due to the fact that each child not caring to listen, had returned to his usual occupation. It was evident that the children, who seemed to read these books with such pleasure, did not take pleasure in the sense, but enjoyed the mechanical ability they had acquired, which consisted in translating the graphic signs into the sounds of a word they recognized. And, indeed, the children did not display the same constancy in reading the books which they showed toward the written slips, since in the books they met with so many unfamiliar words. My second test was to have one of the children read the book to me. I did not interrupt with any of those explanatory remarks by means of which a teacher tries to help the child follow the thread of the story he is reading, saying, for example, Stop a minute. Do you understand? What have you read? You told me how the little boy went to drive in a big carriage, didn't you? Pay attention to what the book says, etc. I gave the book to a little boy, sat down beside him, in a friendly fashion, and when he had read, I asked him simply and seriously, as one would speak to a friend, Did you understand what you were reading? He replied, No, but the expression of his face seemed to ask an explanation of my demand. In fact, the idea that through the reading a series of words the complex thoughts of others might be communicated to us, was to be for my children one of the beautiful conquests of the future, a new source of surprise and joy. The book has recourse to logical language, not to the mechanism of the language. Before the child can understand and enjoy a book, the logical language must be established in him. Between knowing how to read the words and how to read the sense, a book there lies the same distance that exists between knowing how to pronounce a word and how to make a speech. I, therefore, stopped the reading from books and waited. One day, during a free conversation period, four children arose at the same time, and with expressions of joy on their faces, ran to the blackboard and wrote phrases upon the order of the following. Oh, how glad we are that our garden has begun to bloom! It was a great surprise for me, and I was deeply moved. 
These children had arrived spontaneously at the art of composition, just as they had spontaneously written their first word. The mechanical preparation was the same, and the phenomenon developed logically. Logical articulate language had, when the time was ripe, provided the corresponding explosion in written language. I understood that the time had come when we might proceed to the reading of phrases. I had recourse to the means used by the children, that is, I wrote upon the blackboards, Do you love me? The children read it slowly aloud, were silent for a moment, as if thinking, then cried out, Yes, yes. I continued to write, Then make the silence and watch me. They read this aloud, almost shouting, but it had barely finished when a solemn silence began to establish itself, interrupted only by the sounds of the chairs, as the children took positions in which they could sit quietly. Thus began between me and them a communication by means of written language, a thing which interested the children intensely. Little by little they discovered a great quality of writing that it transmits thought. Whenever I began to write, they fairly trembled in their eagerness to understand what was my meaning without hearing me speak a word. Indeed, graphic language does not need spoken words. It can only be understood in all its greatness when it is completely isolated from spoken language. This introduction to reading was followed by the following game, which is greatly enjoyed by the children. Upon a number of cards I wrote long sentences describing certain actions which the children were to carry out. For example, close the window blinds, open the front door, then wait a moment, and arrange things as they were at first. Very politely ask eight of your companions to leave their chairs, and to form in double file in the center of the room, then have them march forward and back upon tiptoe, making no noise. Ask three of your oldest companions, who sing nicely, if they will please come into the center of the room, arrange them in a nice row, then sing with them a song that you have selected, etc., etc. As soon as I finished writing, the children seized the cards, and taking them to their seats, read them spontaneously, with great intensity of attention, and all amid the most complete silence. I asked then, do you understand? Yes, yes. Then do what the card tells you, said I, and was delighted to see the children rapidly and accurately follow the chosen action. A great activity, a movement of a new sort, was born in the room. There were those who closed the blinds, and then reopened them, others who made their companions run on tiptoe, or sing, Others wrote upon the blackboard, or took certain objects from the cupboards. Surprise and curiosity produced a general silence, and the lesson developed amid the most intense interest. It seemed as if some magic force had gone forth from me, stimulating an activity hitherto unknown. This magic was graphic language, the great conquest of civilization. And how deeply the children understood the importance of it! When I went out, they gathered about me with expressions of gratitude and affection, saying, Thank you, thank you, thank you for the lesson. This has become one of the favorite games. We first establish profound silence, then present a basket containing folded slips, upon each one of which is written a long phrase describing an action. All those children who know how to read may draw a slip and read it mentally, once or twice, until they are certain they understand it. They then give the slip back to the directress, and set about carrying out the action. Since many of these actions call for the help of the other children 
who do not know how to read, and since many of them call for the handling and use of the materials, a general activity develops amid marvellous order, while the silence is only interrupted by the sound of little feet running, lightly, and by the voices of the children who sing. This is an unexpected revelation of the perfection of spontaneous discipline. Experience has shown us that composition must precede logical reading, as writing preceded the reading of the word. It has also shown that reading, if it is to teach the child to receive an idea, should be mental and not vocal. Reading aloud implies the exercise of two mechanical forms of the language, articulate and graphic, and is therefore a complex task. Who does not know that a grown person who is to read a paper in public prepares for this by making himself master of the content? Reading aloud is one of the most difficult intellectual actions. The child, therefore, who begins to read by interpreting thought, should read mentally. The written language must isolate itself from the articulate when it rises to the interpretation of logical thought. Indeed, it represents the language which transmits thought at a distance, while the senses and the muscular mechanism are silent. It is a spiritualized language which puts into communication all men who know how to read. Education, having reached such a point in the children's houses, the entire elementary school must, as a logical consequence, be changed. How to reform the lower grades in the elementary schools, eventually carrying them on according to our methods, is a great question which cannot be discussed here. I can only say that the first elementary would be completely done away with by our infant education, which includes it. The elementary classes in the future should begin with children such as ours, who know how to read and write, children who know how to take care of themselves, how to dress and undress, and to wash themselves, children who are familiar with the rules of good conduct and courtesy, and who are thoroughly disciplined in the highest sense of the term, having developed and become masters of themselves, through liberty, children who possess, besides a perfect mastery of the articulate language, the ability to read written language in an elementary way, and who begin to enter upon the conquest of logical language. These children pronounce clearly, write in a firm hand, and are full of grace in their movements. They are the earnest of a humanity grown in the cult of beauty, the infancy of an all-conquering humanity, since they are intelligent and patient observers of their environment, and possess in the form of intellectual liberty the power of spontaneous reasoning. For such children we should found an elementary school worthy to receive them, and to guide them further along the path of life and, and of civilization a school loyal to the same educational principles of respect for the freedom of the child and for his spontaneous manifestations, principles which shall form the personality of these little men. Vogliamo augurare la buona pascale in ignore Eduardo, Palama e alla principessa, Maria, diremo che conducana chi e loro chi bambina, lo schiate fer a me, Laura Vero Io per lui, 4 April 1909. Examples of writing down with pen by a child five years. One-fourth reduction. Translation. We would like to wish a joyous Easter to the civil engineer Eduardo Talamo and the Princess Maria. We will ask them to bring their pretty children here. Leave it to me. I will write for all. April 7th, 1909. End of chapter 17. Recording by Jennifer Stearns, Concord, New Hampshire.